0: Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, something marvellous for music lovers. Flying Nun's number one fan, John Campbell, joins label founder Roger Shepard to riff off the stories in his book, In Love With These Times. Welcome, Roger. uh, Welcome, John. And uh, enjoy. Thank you very much, Mark.
1: Thank thank you, Mark. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, Sunday afternoon session of Going West. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to Roger for coming and for this thoroughly engaging book. I don't know how many of you have a copy of it. If you don't, there's a sales and signings... Sales and signings afterwards, for those of you who don't... Um, it, it's, uh, it's full of such an easy, evocative deafness and warmth and a surprising kind of frankness that it, it's a really unexpectedly wonderful read. And I, I, when I say unexpectedly, the story was always going to be great, but the fact that you wrote it so well, Roger, is a you know, bloody good effort. <laughs> So uh, I, I warmly recommend it. Writing is another thing that Roger Shepherd can do. Um, the story it tells is really worth telling, and it is done justice by the telling. Thank you, Roger, and congratulations on the book, and I do warmly recommend the selling and signing session afterwards. Um, 1981 was a pretty dreadful year, and I suspect many of the people in this room are old enough uh, to know that. Roger Shepherd was turning 21, the child of something new, a housing development in Aranui East Christchurch, which we know now and perhaps should have known then was being built on land that basically couldn't sustain it and would survive almost exactly 50 years, then fall victim to the earthquakes. Commercial radio was as bland and as soulless as a drive-through menu. Ten fucking CC. The fucking Eagles. Billy fucking Joel. Kenny fucking Rogers. Forgive me, that's the only time I'll use the F word this afternoon, but I think in the case of Billy Joel, it's entirely apt... Um, I'm not joking about how bad it was. Lady, by Kenny Rogers, which is one of the most appalling songs ever written, was was the third most popular song in the world in 1981. Uh, Eddie Rabbit, I Love A Rainy Night, Abysmal, was number eight in the world, and REO Speedwagon's Truly Die, Keep On Loving You, was the tenth biggest selling song in the world in 1981. So it was terrible. I was 17, a child of the Wellington middle class. His parents were so desirous of me being a certain type of fellow that I'd been sent to elocution lessons and could say and still can, how now, brown cow, in precisely the right kind of way. Uh, And the stash of magazines I had hidden under my teenage beard uh, because they'd been banned by my father, worried about uh, their influence on me, wasn't Playboy, but the NME. Um, and Rob Muldoon was Prime Minister and the Springboks were coming to New Zealand and it was a grey and grim and bullying time. There was music, wonderful music, but almost all of it came from somewhere else. For me, it was mostly from Britain and as fantastic as it was and as lottery-win exciting as it was to find new vinyl in the import spin in EMI Cuba Mall or Chelsea Records in Manage Ball, which I would haunt like a ghost, hoping somehow to belong uh, to a scene that was actually 18,000 kilometres away. It wasn't our music. It wasn't. Ian Curtis, Ian McCulloch, Paul Weller, Joe Strummer, Robert Smith. I loved them, but I would never see them on Cuba Street or at the Last Resort Cafe, which didn't have a liquor licence. It was an all-ages venue. And whatever they were singing about, it wasn't my country and my life. And that's how it was. The music I loved came from elsewhere, and we were grateful supplicants, and things arrived by email or c-mail weeks after their release in the UK. And the kind of music I loved and was desperate to be part of came from somewhere else. And then, and I'm now, ladies and gentlemen, about to go into a highly sophisticated multimedia part of my introduction. And then, ladies and gentlemen, one day, a friend turned up at my house holding a record. Let's pretend this phone here is, in fact, the record. And let's pretend these microphones are the turntable and... Multimedia. Fuck! that's the kind of event going west is, ladies and gentlemen. And I, I mean, I, even now, even now to hear this just makes me feel happy. And it makes me all happy for all sorts of reasons. At first, I didn't understand uh, how, uh, how happy it would make me. Um, but, but it was funny. I mean, it's a stupid song. Um, it's a song called Tally Ho and Martin Phillips is playing the organ like someone who's only recently learnt it. <laughs> a- a- and I-, I don't think they rise to the lofty heights of three chords, do they, Roger? <laughs> but it, it did everything that I want pop music to do. First of all, it was short, it was verse, chorus, verse. Actually, no, there's no chorus, is there? It's just, ver- it's just verse, isn't it? Yeah, is it all chorus? Or is it all it's all, chorus? Yeah. No chorus. But it's about as monotonal as a pop song can be. And it was funny, and it didn't take itself too seriously, and it hadn't come from an art school in London. It had come from Dunedin, and even though in 1981 I'd never even been to Dunedin, it was a damn sight closer than Manchester was, or London, and it was us. It was our music, and I knew one day I would meet the men who made it, and I knew one day I would see them live, and I did, and on it went. The clean, the chills, Chris and Alex, Straight Jacket fits, Sneaky Feelings, the Bats, the Verlaines, and eventually... So many more, take that Kenny Rogers, take that billboard, take that commercial radio, take that Rob Muldoon and winter and boredom and greyness. And they weren't saying, what are you? Which, of course, Greg McGee had told us about so powerfully the year before. They were different kind of men, different and altogether more exciting. And it spoke to me so much, and it was such an exciting time in my life. Uh, Martin on the organ, those beautiful kilgour boys, i have always secretly have quite a strong sexual crush on... Um, i one of the brothers, so you can spend the afternoon trying to work out which one. Uh, and it made me understand that being from here was not only okay, it was funny, it was catchy, it was kind of sexy, and it was wonderful. And Roger Shepard, who built Flying Nun and in doing so, gave us such fantastic treasures. Thank you and congratulations and welcome. Thank you. If I sit really close beside you a little, like recording, um, can can you hear me? Right. Can you hear me? Can you hear? Can you hear? Can you hear me? Can you hear Roger?
2: <clears throat> Hello. So you had a you had a crush on? <laughs> Did I hear that incorrectly or correctly?
1: I, I had a crush on a major crush on David. Yeah. <laughs> a, 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 I mean, obviously not one I being seriously uptight. And not not one over consummated or even declared to David, although I've said it in public many times. But that you know, the clean life. We're a sexy band.
2: It's always the guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Do they get the shags? Today? Well, they don't, they, well, I guess it, well, both them. They all sing. Yeah. But there's no there's no standalone singer, so I guess you no. go for the guitarist. He's quite an impressive guitarist. Yeah. Special.
1: Yeah. is a beautiful, early on in the book there's this beautiful description of you being invited back to people's houses to listen to their records and finding yourself alone with strange men (laughs) Yes, yes,
2: strange men that usually lived with their mothers (laughs) And they'd have their stereo, you know, their very fancy stereo set up in their bedroom and they'd invariably roll a joint and you think, oh no, <laughs> was kinda, but no, it was all about listening to some dreadful progressive rock album, usually. Yeah,
1: God, they were dreadful, weren't they?
2: Mostly. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Ten CC before. I don't think they were ever that bad.
1: No, no I, no. I was discussing it with a friend, and they said, don't put Ten CC in there. They were mm. better than the, the than the others. But the later Ten
2: CC is quite poor. You know, yeah.
1: the the reggae, uh, the reggae yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the
2: early Ten CC is great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about um, your mum. Christmas holidays, late nineteen seventy six. So you were sixteen, right? Mm-hmm. And your mother thought you needed a job. Yes. And where did
2: you end up? I ended up with a part-time job in a record shop. So it's the record factory in town. So my mother thought I needed a job because I was just sort of lounging around school holidays, not you know, not doing anything. Rec- r- rather than just probably watching the cricket and black and shield cricket. So I looked in the paper, and there was this ad for a job, and, I, and a record job, and I thought, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And I rang up, and I had real trouble getting through for some reason, the, game, the phone seemed to be engaged. And I eventually got through, and I, then I had to go and do this interview. And uh, they, offered, offered me this, they asked me questions like, had I seen the ads for, on television for um, the new Status Quo and Genesis albums? And I said, yes, I love those bands. Uh, which I think was the expectation of the question. And I got the job on the basis of uh, the, my enthusiasm and my, um, <laughs> well, hopefully not my musical taste, <laughs> or my degree of sincerity when <laughs> I was lying through my teeth. Um, so, yes, that's how it started. I mean, I guess I had a uh, sort of... I had a, kind of a, a cursory interest in music, but there was limited... Uh, you know, I didn't care for the music that was on radio. It was about, you know, the sort of cast-off records that my friends played. Had you heard Sergeant Peppers by then because that was one that stopped you in, in your tracks? wasn't I, it? I was very young, um, would have been perhaps eight or nine years old and um, my brother had a copy at home which he never played or probably wasn't allowed to play and I'd sneak it on the turntable when mum and dad went out to the shops, do the grocery shopping on Saturday. So you know Aaron knew he was quite, well still is, possibly even bleaker than it was then. But um, and it, listening to that album just made me realise that there was this whole colourful, crazy world out there, that there was this amazing stuff that was going on, and I guess that, you know, I, I didn't go for Dylan so much, No, it seemed a bit bleak and blunt, but um, I guess I just loved that record, and it was like, it made me realise there was something out there that it's an extraordinary experience when that happens, isn't
1: it? I suspect everyone in the room's had that at some stage in their lives. I suspect, and, it, it's, and possibly that's why they're here today. Maybe they had it with flying nun bands. Possibly. But, so you ended up working with, what's his name, Del Richards, hmm. in the record store? Yeah. And can we talk? Because I reckon people, especially our age, so I apologise to everyone in the room who's grown up without vinyl, but I reckon part of the love of music also came with the love of the tactile, the whole business of the covers and the yep. albums, and taking them out and putting them on, and the needle, and yep. if you want to listen to a song again, you just move it, you know. So you, you had all of that, and also the
2: strange community of, of record shops, where people come in... Yes, well, this is where I tended to meet those strange men that lived with their mothers. (laughs) Uh, uh, They would come into the record shop, because obviously they didn't have sort of proper ordinary friends. They were, you know, their social social world revolved around the record shop, and, um, you know, there there was a whole, I mean, there's probably no stereotype, but there's a whole range of um, personality types from the from what we used to call the freaks, who were the kind of the really outrageous ones that would invariably want records that no one would willingly import into the country. To ghosts. We had ghosts who would want to listen to music but never actually buy it. (laughs) Um, So they were called ghosts. And, you know, right through to art school students, to office workers, to school kids, to elderly people that had come in from the country wanting to buy country and western. Um, because the shot was called Record Factory we even had people come in from the country wanting to get their record pressed <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and, and, yeah. so, and so you're 16 years old when you start doing this by 21
1: you're starting flying down and in there you say I think it's one of the first sentences in the book I must have been drunk mm-hmm. and, 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 and but I, I, I think I mean I we were talking a bit in the green room. We'll come back to this, your character, because essentially you're shy and you've worked much of your life overcoming that shyness mm-hmm. or, or, or simply setting yourself aside from things and, and letting bigger personalities be in the foreground. But, you, I mean, you made this happen. And you don't only make things happen when you're drunk. So what was it in your head? And I, I guess, I mean, we were talking about the fact that you couldn't access the... Turntable when your parents were at home. Radio was abysmal, so there was an enormous amount of paternalism about the music industry. Either your dad controlled the stereo, and you know that the state and a small number of commercial radio stations were not taking any kind of risks. There were a small number of record companies controlling all the distribution. Chris Knox, I know, has spent his life feeling, well, spent his young life feeling angry about this, particularly the absence of New Zealand music from the radio. And I wondered, did you ever feel angry? Was part of what motivated you a kind of anger?
2: Yeah. Yeah, which is possibly something I don't talk about in the book, actually. But yeah, I felt um, I think it was p- part of the general uh, sort of post-punk experience, or well, punk, definitely punk experience. But I think that it, it, it bleeds through right for the next right through the eighties, as far as uh, independent music is concerned, was a, a disgust with the way that the business, the music business, was controlled by by large multi overseas large multi internationals, and the idea that. Um, they were effectively making the decisions about what we could effectively listen to. And I think that whole post-punk experience came about because uh, there were people picking up instruments and learning to play them and to write songs and working out how to be in a band and then make those recordings effectively themselves. And then I was part of that broad international kind of movement towards you know independent records popping up to, to help them do that, to help them make those records and get them pressed and distribute them. And there was a, yes, there was a them and us, and sometimes it was, um, there was a little bit of hate in there as well. I'm mm. sure they hated me. Did you experience that? Uh, they were quite keen on... Uh, there was, I think there was a general... Um, inability to comprehend, because we were successful in 81 with the clean, mm. and soon after the need and double was big, and we just we were selling records. And I think this mystified the established industry uh, they, they could they couldn't they couldn't understand how this could happen without uh, conventional radio play so the uh, the company that pressed our records obviously knew we were selling records and uh, very much tried to um, you know offer us a very good deal to do our distribution to get a slice of that action but my feeling was that we, at that time we needed to, to remain close and um, to retail, which was effectively, you know, our, our, the way we connected with our customers uh, by having a good relationship with retail. So I, I kept that quite close and worked right hard through. to do so. Yeah, and, really, and really hard, old-fashioned kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. building relationships with people that are dealing with effectively your customers, shop by shop. Yep. Because
1: the music existed. I mean, Chris was already making music by then, and, and, and obviously the Clean were already making music by then. And Martin, I think the Chills were probably just beginning to be formed, mm. but he'd, he'd he'd already begun making music. But what would have happened to it were it not for Flying Nun? Would we? I mean, I, and this is I, don't, I know you don't want to be even remotely self-aggrandising,
2: but would we have heard that music? How would we have heard it? Uh, probably the probably most of it, no. I mean, I, I, you know, perhaps, perhaps the Chills, I don't know, I can't imagine The Clean doing a deal with a multinational record company.
1: Um, and, and the Chills went to Slash, but only after they had Flying Nun releases. Yep. I mean, only after Flying Nun made the world aware of yep. of who they were, what, what, what Martin essentially was doing.
2: Yeah. So I, I sort of feel that perhaps one or two of the more ambitious bands eventually perhaps could have uh, uh, got themselves a, a conve- an old-fashioned conventional uh, crappy record con- contract with a major record company, but whether they would have survived the experience, I don't know. Would they have made effective recordings? I'm not sure. Extraordinary to think about that, isn't it? And, and, and also,
1: there was, an, there was a... I mean, they just weren't managed. Quite late in the book, we meet uh, Debbie Gibbs for the first time, who was managing Straightjacket Fitz, and, and there's this lovely description, you meet her at the Aurora Hotel on Victoria Street, mm. and, and you say, we even had a contract... And then you say it was the first such document you'd ever drawn up, and mm-hmm. I think to myself, "Holy shit! How could that possibly be?" But it was that was the first contract like that you'd ever signed. Yep, amazing. So all that work had gone before, just word of mouth, handshakes, yeah,
2: handshakes. And I don't think that I don't think that was particularly um, I don't think that was particularly just us. I think probably the more the more ramshackle, so British and American yeah, yeah, record companies probably thing. do the same thing.
1: Um, There's this lovely description, though, uh, about managers or the lack of... ..because most of of the Flying Nun bands didn't have great managers. They Mm. were managed by boyfriends or girlfriends or members of the bands or whatever, or no-one at all. And you say essentially the entrepreneurial types that might have become managers were smart enough to see that the potential income was unlikely to make it worth their while. A very New Zealand paradox. God, that's a desperately bloody awful paradox, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's true, though, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, there was very little financial... um, uh, tangible financial reward that most well Debbie could perceive it because she could see the potential international. For Fats, yeah. yeah. But if you just look at selling uh, records just in New Zealand alone, then uh, you know twenty percent of nothing is it'll be less than nothing. Uh...
1: <laughs> well, we'll get we'll get to nineteen eighty nine, right? where actually it effectively was less than nothing, so we'll come mm-hmm. back and, and 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 talk about that later. But, I, but when we were coming out here today, I decided to listen to the quintessential uh, West Auckland Flying Down Band, uh Ness Royce. I don't know, is anyone here knows the Royce or from the Royce? Or there's not any Royce, there's not Royce members in the room, is there? I wish there were, because what a beautiful band. And I was listening to Ain't Mutating. Is that Damien down, down the back there? Hello, nice to see you. And I was listening to Ain't Mutating. And... Um, uh, and my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter came in, uh, who was a Beyonce fan and a Drake fan and Rihanna and all that, and she said, Dad, what's this about? And why are you looking that way? Because I was, lo- you know, looking wistfully into the distance. And I said, Aunty, this is a fucking beautiful song. Can you hear what a beautiful song it is? She kind of looked slightly bewildered at me. And I said, I, you know, I doubt they sold a 1,000 copies of this. And I feel incensed on their behalf mm-hmm. and on Flying Nun's behalf that someone didn't see the treasures you have and work harder to get them to the world. And you were all doing that yourselves. And uh, did you ever think, mm, you know, sell, damn you?
2: Yeah, well, I always felt confident the music stood up and that it was really just a matter of getting it out there. So it was a matter of sticking the physical records in cardboard boxes, taking them across to the post office, which is like my second home. Um... And posting them off to the enemy or John Peel or funny little fanzines in Germany, and really that's just that whole word of mouth thing started It wasn't by people reading about it on you know on the internet or hearing it on uh, you know seeing it on iTunes or whatever it was all, sending physical copies out, and you have to email them because if they go by C they buckle and uh, um so yeah, we just put the hard work in really, and I guess um. Probably most of the sort of early years worth of profit, if there was any, sort of went, you know, went to the post office. <laughs> I became strangely fond of um, cardboard. <laughs> I've heard this. You <laughs> know, <laughs> and packing. It's sort of, you got a little bit, and stamps actually. but um, So, so, so you, you would lick the stamp and put... And, well, you had to. yeah. There they went. There was no franking machine? No, no. Well, Rip It Up had a franking machine. I, I, didn't, like, I, didn't, look, I didn't like the way that that, uh, that, I think, a franking machine that famously the most of us forgot about. But not forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, right, right. The yeah. free
2: franking machine. Yeah. Well, it was free for That's you know, a couple of years' worth of franking. <laughs> Brilliant. But it all went wrong in the end. Um, <laughs> so I didn't want to go that route. No, we, I liked the stamps. There's a bit of me all around the (laughs) book.
1: Licked, licked by Roger Shepard. Can I talk about you? You said there's a bit of me, can I talk about you? And and for people who've read the book, I don't know if you've noticed, I mean, Roger's beautiful frankness in dealing with people like Chris, Chris Knox, who is is a, I mean, was so generous and so kind. You say in your book that, you know, when bands were coming out from the South Island, they were always welcome to stay with Chris and Barbara and Grey Lynn. And when there was artwork to be done, Chris was always available to do it. And when there was somebody making a lot of noise in the crowd for a new band, it was probably Chris. And the four-track, the tech, you know, and all of that, his incredible generosity. And on the other hand, his kind of brittleness and he could be a and all. You really, I think you just get that just right. And it's beautiful writing. But I think the fellow that you're most, you find most difficult to address actually yourself. That's my take on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read you how you describe yourself. You describe yourself as passive, apathetic, laxadaisical, manic depressive, which is actually a clinical diagnosis, but also one for wild enthusiasms rather than anything considered uncautious, shy but made sociable by drink, shy again, rattled by attention, and a husk. I think, how the fuck did you do anything?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I had my moments. (laughs) Um, Obviously. (laughs) The, uh, yeah, well, but you were you overcoming, were you fighting that shyness the whole time? I think I'm naturally quiet and, um, yeah, I just, see? I'm natu- <laughs> naturally, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's why I ended up writing the book. Sort of easier than talking about it, really. But, uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit shy. I was one of those really nerdy, shy kids at school. I didn't really uh, talk to the other kids or the teachers. Um, not much to my parents, because they were quite a bit older than, you know, they were old, older parents. So yeah, no, so I pretty much lived in my own little world. What did your parents make of Flying Down? Um, I, gave a, I remember giving my father a copy of uh, the Clean Boodle EP, which sort of got put next to the Pe- Beetle Sergeant Pepper's album, it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I believe that he, he gave it to my brother several years later, going, you know, I don't need this. You, not, he wasn't going to listen to it. Do you, so he you never listened to it. No, I think he would have really enjoyed point that thing.
1: Yeah, I think he might
2: yeah. have too. But no, he wasn't interested in um, hearing it. And then over time, he kind of realised that it was some that, you know, I'd been gainfully employed. Well, not really gainfully, but kind of employed, <laughs> um, doing this thing for you know perhaps fifteen years. That there must be something. There must be some substance to it, and uh, kind of. You know, I think he enjoyed. That. I think he enjoyed the idea, but he had no no idea of what I was actually doing.
1: You know, you know what I reckon. Dads, like your dad, get it when other men their age start saying, "Oh, your boy's doing well." Saw Roger in the paper. And
2: saw then Roger saw... in the pub. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this through that you. What, what pub were you at? There's someone you met someone? What pub were you at? And they introduced themselves to you as the owner of Flying Down
2: Records. Mm. Is, that, is that a true story? That is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yes, it happened in the, pub, the, the really scary public bar, um, United Services Hotel. Um, yes. I,
1: actually, what, I know
2: the... Yeah, uh, you, do you know who it is? I, I know do you, who it is, yeah.
1: Have you ever reminded them of that?
2: No, it doesn't seem... It seems so sort of pathetically stupid that, no, I don't want to embarrass them. Although the sincerest form of flattery, right? Mm. I mean, when people start claiming your work for
1: themselves, that means your work I guess, matters. I guess. Yeah. Oh, I like the plaque turning up. It's beautifully deadpan, but a plaque turned up from the company's office after you registered Flying Nun. I wish I have somewhere I've got the exact words. The Registered Office of Flying Nun Limited.
2: Did you put it on the wall? I think you were legally obliged to screw it into your front door. Do you still have it? Uh, Somewhere. It's a bit broken. And and when you arrived at work, what did you think when you looked at it? I think I I shouldn't have called it (laughs) that. What should you have called it? I don't know. That's why it's called Flying Nun, because I couldn't think <laughs> of anything. I mean, I go through that. I kind of talk about the the quandary because I think everything was ready to go. I had, a, you know, pin group recording ready to go, and I just needed a, a name for the company. The other, I think, the other names are not as good as Flying Nun.
1: That you list, you'd list about half a dozen, I think.
2: Round Records. Yeah,
1: yeah, and something, <laughs> some, some Christchurch thing. Some what was S-square it? Square
2: Records. Square none. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really. I mean, names are really hard. Yeah, Mm. we had the same problem with our children. (laughs) But uh, but they've got more conventional. Well, slightly more (laughs) conventional names. I
1: I don't know how questions work from the floor. I don't. I don't know what what stage we do questions from the floor. I don't know how this works. But I feel like there will be people here. I mean, you know, as. I mean, I can just talk non-stop the whole time, and there are lots of questions I want to ask, and I'd like to get into the issue of bans, but is there there anyone on the floor who's got something that are aching to ask Roger? And and please don't despair if you haven't, because there's stuff I'd like to... very specific stuff I'd like to ask. But I feel... It just feels like a lovely Sunday afternoon encounter. Josie Campbell, have you got anything you'd like to ask? I see a hand over here. A hand. Karen! Hi, Karen. It is Karen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, why why did you choose or settle on Flying
2: Nun? Well, it was desperation. (laughs) I mean, there was simply no other, you know, no other. The list was really short and quite, quite boring. So I just, you know, it was just a rash decision. One day I was probably just in the right mood and thought, we'll just go with this (laughs) Flying Nun records.
1: You regretted it, didn't you?
2: Oh, instantly. (laughs) But it was too late. (laughs) It was too late. I'd, you know, I'd sent the accountant and the, sent the paperwork into the company's office and we had this bloody plaque. <laughs> and a rubber stamp. Company seal. Flying and Records Limited. I'm pleased you called it that. It works, I reckon. Well, after a while you
1: forget yeah. how stupid the name is and just move yeah. on. And, it, and then after a while it gets its own cachet, doesn't it? In the same way that you always think of a person when you hear... When you hear a name, right? Mm. Flying Nun for me is fantastic. Right. right? I'm glad you like it. Well, I love it because of (laughs) what it represents. Right. You and your work and your bands. Can we talk about some of the bands? Sneaky Feelings. Um, uh, uh, Sneaky Feelings are a fascinating presence in this book because Sneaky Feelings, I think, tried a very difficult... And they didn't, in the end, really survive, did they? The balancing act. And they were ambitious and they wanted Mm. to be commercially successful and they wrote the most achingly beautiful music um, and 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 and, but somehow they were awry, askance from the rest of the Flying Nun, and the and and. What, what was it like dealing with them, with their talent, but
2: the sort of sense that things weren't being realised or fulfilled? Oh, it's always true. it's always a balancing act. I mean, uh, with a band like the Sneaky Feelings, you had actually more than one strong personality, mm. more than one um, songwriter. David Pine, who I guess wrote probably. Most of the, for me, most of the really fantastic early Sneaky Feelings songs. It was a very amiable, mm. pleasant guy. Went on to be, I think, our high commissioner in Malaysia and the Philippines. Mm. Very diplomatic. Very careful what he said to me. Smart. <laughs> um, worked, for us in the, worked, for, worked for us in the office, you know, to keep an eye on things, make sure that Sneaky Feelings' business was at the top of the agenda, probably. Um, and then there was Matthew, who was sort of shyer and a bit more... And this time went on wrote more and more of the songs. It was a bit more, had more difficulty with, perhaps re- uh, re- uh, rubbed Chris up the wrong way, or rather Chris rubbed him up the wrong way. And I guess got his revenge in his book. He did, didn't he?
1: <laughs> Send you was a masterpiece, wasn't it? You yes. call it a masterpiece. It was yep. an absolute masterpiece. And how many copies did it sell? Oh, it would have been thousands. Thank God for uh, that. I'm not sure how many. And then and then they didn't go on from there,
2: did they? Was... Well, they made more and more. I, they mean, ma- I mean, they made other records. They and made they would... a, yeah, they made other records. I think, and they were one of the first bands to go overseas and sort of tour places like, um, accidentally, uh, tour East Germany um, before the war came down. I was having trouble with the motorway. Um, <laughs> but they were one of those bands. Um, we didn't hear from. Them. We didn't hear from them for weeks. Um, the uh, so that you know we kind of. Well, like all those bands, they got on and made their own luck and got out there and, you know, travelled to the UK and played in Europe and, and just sort of went for it. But, you know, the tension comes sometimes with bands where they, you know, they make an initial fantastic record and how do you follow up, how do you record your next album?
1: And and, and maybe, I mean, the classic example of that for me was Submarine Bells, which is just a genius record, followed, and you say it in the book, Too Fast by Soft Bomb. There was just pressure to yeah. get another one out, wasn't there? Yeah. So yep. it's the chills if you... And yeah. The, yeah.
2: And I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the next album is, uh, is is inferior. It may just be slightly out of fashion or non-aligned with current tastes, and um, or just you know slightly harder to get into. There can All sorts of factors. And I think the sneaky feelings just more As David wrote less and less songs. I haven't told Matthew this, but he lives in Hamilton, which I believe is some distance from here. <laughs> um, David wrote fewer and fewer songs, so there was sort of the, the balance that sort of was there on *Send You*, which is a short album. Um, the, the kind of the balance that sort of got slightly out of kilter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they're bad albums; they're just like they became harder albums to sell. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The world's full of great albums that don't sell. Fail, fail yeah, to sell. Yeah.
1: Can we talk about Martin Phillips? Mm. When you first meet him, he, this is just this beautiful sense of almost like a schoolboy. He's polite. He was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. No, did, did, you, did you meet him up here for the first time? No.
2: I met him, yes, when I followed, because um, I'd, I'd met The Clean yeah. and um, I'd set up the company, you know, $300, capitalised $300. Then I saw The Clean and I thought, wow, this is like the best band I've ever seen. They've got to be on my label. So I was pretty much on stage, as though David, your boyfriend, was playing the final chord of uh, Point That Thing Somewhere Else, John, um, and said, look, I've got this, I've got this um, record, new record label. I haven't released anything. It's called Flying Nun Records, Please Don't Laugh. Will you be on my label? And they said, oh, look, that's great. We'll think about it. We're off to Auckland now. I said, Auckland? There's other record companies in Auckland. We're off to Auckland now. We'll, we'll come and see you when we come back through. So I stewed on this for a couple of days and I jumped and I spent $250 of the $300 <laughs> on, a, on flying to Auckland, where I'd never, I'd never even been on a plane before, and tracked them down to Ponsonby Road. And a friend dropped me off on Ponsonby Road. It when Ponsonby Road was so scary, uh, no restaurants, KCs were beating up punks. My friend wouldn't even stop the car. I had to jump from a moving car. LAUGHTER um, and they were staying in a house up the Three Lamps End. And I, it was actually the Androids' house and they were, where they were living. Knocked on the door, and it was Martin Phillips that answered the door. And the clean had gone out. Must have heard I was coming, they'd gone <laughs> out. And so I got talking to Martin, who's just probably still at school, probably just 17, 18 years old. And he talked about it. You know. He knew I was here to see the clean, but he, he had, this, had this wonderful hour or so. Um, I think David was dating John. The, um, I'm never telling you any secrets again. Oh, done. it's out now. <laughs> the um, Facebook, Facebook this afternoon, I must get the photo. The, um, yeah, so I guess I, I probably had a, a, a deeper conversation about the found out about the, the chills before I did the, the clean, really.
1: Can I, because can, can I, I want to come back to Martin, but w- were the clean talking to, was it Simon, were they talking to Propeller, were they talking to anyone up here, or were they just having an outing?
2: Uh, they were playing, they played a gag again. Really, I saw them. I mean, they were fantastic. They were really on fire. You know, it was a stable lineup. with Robert Scott on bass, the, the glue mm. that made the, mm. the, the crazy brother thing work. Um, the, they talked to Simon at Propeller. He felt he couldn't work with a band from Dunedin, that it was simply too far away.
1: So by that stage, he had the Mimis and the Blams, and who else?
2: Uh, Pneumatics. That's and, right, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And he would have done the Tool Dwarves And first. the Mimis
1: had had a number... Simi go went to number one, yep.
2: didn't it? yeah. So he, so he actually had some runs on the board. Yeah. But he, felt, he loved the band and he felt he couldn't work with them because they lived too far away. And on uh, the same visit, they went to see Harlequin Studios. The idea of perhaps, you know, recording something there. <laughs> Gave them the demo tape. Got the demo tape given back to them so that it, saying that it, the advice that it lacked any kind of potential <laughs> to achieve anything. And uh, even if they had the money, they, they wouldn't record them because they were so shit useless. Um, what was on the demo? I'm not sure. Well, probably if you listen to, if you've got the oddities, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd yeah. say I've a lot of that stuff.
1: Right. Jesus, I'm inclined to agree with Alec on a couple of cases. Oh,
2: it's all. <laughs> it's, all good. it's all good. Yeah. The um, you, you see the the we sort a oh, lot yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so the
1: the so famously, Tally Ho was fifty bucks. What, what I didn't realize is that was a completely arbitrary figure. That wasn't. You didn't get a bill at the end of it, and it was it added up to fifty dollars. You see it. We're going to spend
2: $50 on recording this. Yeah, I think I would have probably talked to Hamish and David and we probably went, well, how much are we going to spend? And I was going, oh, how much do you think? And I was probably thinking, oh, got, I've got $50 left in the bank. Perhaps uh, $50 be enough? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they went to Nightshift Studios and um, the $50 was enough.
1: Although you regret it. You're saying that you regretted it. It took you 30 years... Before you could hear that song without a sense of regret, that you that it was that it sounded like a fifty dollars recording job.
2: Yeah, yeah. I always thought it sounded um, pretty rough. I mean, I actually it was a few years not so many years ago. Now, I actually put a few calls in because I thought well, actually we've got to we've got to do some we've got to tidy that up that tape. We've got to remix it or something. So, so you get the master. Get the master. But then <laughs> that's when I discovered that the fifty dollars didn't actually buy the master tape. It only bought the recording. So they'd reused the master <laughs> tape. And they'd recorded something else over the top of it.
0: I'd
2: love to know what it was. Bloody hell!
1: Right, let's go back to Martin and and and, uh, and his brilliance, and then his kind of Icarus fall, and 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 wonderfully. I mean, if we'd had this conversation, you know, four, four or five years ago, it would have been a really, really sad conversation. Whereas now, I feel optimism and hope and a sense of you know, real happiness for Martin that he's flying again, that he's, mm. made, that he's God, he's working with the most solid band he's ever had. Yep. And he, he's recording again, and there's a whole lot of new stuff coming out, but that, I mean, Submarine Bells was such a genius album. He got signed to Slash, he was recording, he was XTC, Engineers and Producers, right, and all that kind yep. of, yeah, yeah, and the sky was the limit, and then he came home and kapow. Yeah, I
2: guess that it was, he, he, got, he got so close with um, Submarine Bells, Heavenly Pop, hit, you know, incredibly accessible song. Almost cracked it in Britain on the radio. You know, almost cracked. Made real progress, but the grind, the grind of making the record, the grind of promoting it, playing night after night, you know, in a different venue, different invariably shitty venue, in a different town, it just wore the band out.
1: And, and so he kept losing members, right? And he lost he lost two key members, didn't he? At
2: that stage, I think Justin and... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of imploded. I mean, we—he came. I think they came back to tour um, that album in New Zealand. We had a number one album with that, number two single the same week. Everything was just fantastic except the band felt to bits. And, um, and he felt a bits, really. Yeah, yeah. I think when you put all that, you know, it's all ambition and drive, and you put all that energy into something for 12 years of your life, and that's, um, that's kind of compounded by... a, a essentially an incredibly unhealthy lifestyle of, you know, travelling and eating badly and I don't know what you drink, cider or beer, you know, it's just a, a very grinding existence. So I guess, um, yes, he just sort of, it, you know, broke him to a certain extent. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying
1: that. No, he talks about it himself, mm. yeah. He, he, he's brave, Martin, isn't he? I mean, he, he, there's something in him, he just, he
2: has to make music, that's yeah. That's it. yeah. We're a bit like the you end. Know, not much else we can do. <laughs> is, that tr- is that true? that true? Oh, probably. Who would employ me? Well, I don't know. I'm not well, very good with uh, taking instructions. So you weren't very good with money, were you? No, not. Quite oh, sort of average. <laughs> <laughs> really, I was good at making a lot of out of, out of nothing. Yeah, yeah. But um, no money, not uh, not administration. Paperwork. Yeah.
1: Hey, I didn't realise that Hamish was full-time flying nun. Yep. Yeah. I didn't realise
2: that. No, he was the... Fa- was he a, was your office man. Yeah, yeah. So Hamish out from the, the Clean Drummer, famous for sending records out with, our, you know, with the sleeves rather than... The, not putting the records inside the sleeves. Um, people still talk about that <laughs> in Dunedin. Um, yes, he sensibly... He sensed that once the invoices would no longer fit in the desk drawer... <laughs> that perhaps we needed a system, and I, I could see that it was a problem. Uh, so he went off and did sort of you know basic accounting, that's, um, which was, a, was what we built our accounting system on. Good old-fashioned manual system with, you know, pencil and a calculator. 1989, flying down mul- flying must have looked
1: pretty good from the outside, but there was a problem. The general lack of money in the bank, it was starting to get dire, and as it got dire, I found it difficult to cope. Mm-hmm. It must have been a tough, tough time, because from the outside, it was looking fantastic, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was always, it was kind of always tough, to be honest, but yeah, 89, particularly tough, particularly uh, a tough year. I mean, we just kept on spending money on making records, you know, we, perhaps we should have pulled back a bit, but I was such a sucker for um, a new band, or <laughs> doing another ambitious sort of recording project. And I think by that stage, the Heads of the Chickens were sort of, um, you know, full steam ahead. Yeah. We were a band that did need to spend money in the studio to make kind of what they had in their head work, recording-wise. Um, and I just remember the work-in-progress figure, which was you know the amount of money we ever would have tied up in recording projects that hadn't re- hadn't been released, so they weren't making a return. Would you know be a hundred, hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty-five thousand? Which is a lot of money when you're, you're capitalized is. to the tune. You still capitalized to the tune of um, three hundred dollars. 250 <laughs> off, which you've blown on an airfare. But um, So yes, so there's natural stre- you know we were probably uh, technically insolvent, I, I think. And because we were selling a lot of our business was, was international. We were, we were licensing records, but we were also um, shipping you know, finished product, records you know ready-made with royalties paid at the end. And just dealing with distributors that, you know in America that uh, worked on the basis of uh, paying their bills, you know, 180 days after, uh, after the end of the month that they received them and things like that. It was, made it very hard. So we needed, a part, we needed a business partner. Mushroom? Yeah. Yeah. So at that stage, I think I had two offers. I remember going to New York, having one meeting. The one, Oh, no, I two. I missed the other one. Um never go to New York in July, it's terrible. You, you, you hate the heat, don't Oh, you? yeah, that's the worst place. So every July, I'd end up in bloody New York. Um, and there's a lovely, there's a really great
1: description. I don't think the very early days of cell phones, maybe mm-hmm. they weren't working at all, or maybe anyway, and you're in New York, you're sweating profusely, and you're trying to tee up business meetings from pay phones, jamming coins mm-hmm. into payphones, phones, yep. desperately trying to get hold of people who probably you couldn't get hold of. Yep. And it sort of feels like it's kind of slipping from your grasp.
2: Yeah, a little bit. I remember being in a meeting at, um, you know, the Time Warner, the Rockefeller Center. Yeah, yeah. yeah in there And uh, the Warner Music people, being so jet lagged, not really grasping what what, what the head of A and R was telling me, which was they wanted to do a label deal with me, and that I should I should um, I should talk to my lawyer to get to talk to their lawyers, and just having this real trouble, just trying to work out what she actually meant, uh, just because of the jet lag and general sort of lack of sleep and stress, I think. So I had the choice of going with them; they were kind of interested, or well, going with Mushroom, which was an ind- independent but radio-driven uh, record company based in Melbourne, Australia. And the New York option just it just seemed too far away and too too hard to potentially manage. Kind of a groovier record company, kind of the co- record company you kind of think I'd like to get into bed with them, with them, but. We plumbed with Mushroom because it was was only three hours away and there were people there on the inside of the company that I I thought I could work with. Do you you regret that now? Yeah, I can't really fault Mushroom. I mean, there's sort of lots of things wrong with them, like their roster, um, the way they sell music, some of the personalities involved in the company, (laughs) the person that owns it. Their cash flow crisis that came about <laughs> soon after that. <laughs> Probably made worse by us. <laughs> um, but I, I, can't, I really can't fault their uh, degree of enthusiasm. Well, they they spent a lot of money on quite a lot of, uh, recording, again, recording projects. Um, you know, trying to do more and uh, trying to do the deals, I guess, to get the, get the bands to a place where they could actually make a living by playing music. You know, we didn't have the ambition. We didn't really want... We weren't really thinking you know, this band or that band can be the next U2. I, just, I, I really felt we can get a lot of these bands, if, if we do it right, we can get these bands to a point where they can make a living out of playing their own music, doing their own thing. Yeah. And actually, a lot of them have. Eventually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And we're so.
1: running out of time. Questions from the floor? Questions from the floor? Any questions from the floor? Because I'm going to ask... If you don't have questions from the floor, I'm going to ask Roger for some more stories. Th- thank you. We'd love to... Hear your question at bring a microphone.
2: Over over. Here. Hi, I was just gonna ask, was it difficult with all those egos of all the musos in Dunedin, you know, and difficult personalities? And I mean, it seems like you're awfully polite in the book about them. Are you just being polite <laughs> or was it was it really difficult? Uh, I actually consider all those people to be sort of friends, really. I'm really, really fond of virtually all of them. And I mean you know, it's probably sort of, it's probably sort of, um, there's probably sort of uh, essential sort of psychology uh, one-on-one sort of going on all round, really. They were probably trying to work out what I was on about and what was wrong with me, and I was kind of trying to work out how to deal with them. And some were more difficult than others. Um, that is true, but uh, it's quite often it comes with the creative uh, creative stresses. Um,
1: we, we want we want the who is dirt. more who difficult? is that we want the dirt well, rated what, what's a, your first
2: name?
1: <laughs> Ruth wants the dirt
2: right on a scale of one to ten I need. we need the chart <laughs> um hmm gosh well the one I guess the 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 one that sort of saddens me most nice was Peter guttrich who I talk yeah, about quite yeah. quite a bit in the in the book um you know incredibly talented he Brilliant. was on, you know he was in the, the first clean lineup he was on the first Chills lineup made some fantastic music as Snapper, made some fantastic music under his own name. But I'm afraid, you know, the, the addiction problems really got in the way of him being able to make music and to be able to deal with, you know, the other people you need to do, deal with in making and selling and promoting music. And I, I, I've, unfortunately, I found Peter in, incredibly difficult to, to work with. And I regret that, but it just was so hard. And I, I guess I'm trying to deal with that sort of mixed, uh, those kind of mixed feelings that I have for Peter in the book. And that was one of the more sort of tricky bits I felt, I found to, to write. You do a nice job of it. And it's, again, it's a balancing act where you can't just say, you know, Peter made great music and dismiss, not talk about the other stuff. Yeah. The stuff that kind of got in the way of him actually being able to sell that make more great music and help sell it. So you know, I guess I say a few things a bit, bit blunt about a few things in the book about Peter and perhaps a few other people. But really, um, you know, if you're looking for an element of truth, something that actually means something, then that stuff, some of that stuff, has to be in there. I think we've got a
0: question. down the back. Down the back. Thank you.
1: Hi. How do you f- think the um, effect of your le- legacy or has, you know, what kind of effects has it had in Dunedin and the music industry?
2: In Dunedin, um, well, a lot of the a lot of the people that I worked with in the early 80s are still living in Dunedin. Martin's in Dunedin. Shane Carter's just gone back to live yeah, in Dunedin. Graham Downs teaches music at the university. Um, a lot of those characters are still there.
1: Bob's there, isn't he? Bob's Bob. Scott?
2: David Kilgar. Yeah. Still surfing every day. Yeah. Um, so a lot of a lot of those. A lot of those people are still there. I, I don't get a sense that the scene in Dunedin is healthy like it is in the 80s. But I think what happened in the late 70s or through the 80s was um, was pretty special, and not just in terms of Dunedin or New Zealand, but you know internationally. Like, you know, it's it, perhaps it's not as well known as you know Liverpool in the early 60s or Seattle, you know, the grunge era, Seattle, or that dreadful Hate Ashbury time in the 60s in San Francisco. Um, or Manchester in the yeah, yeah, yeah. early 80s. But I, th- I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's significant. There was a huge body of music that came out of that time and it was all because it was a, a very concentrated, supportive scene. Extraordinary. Yeah. Special time.
1: Yeah, matching.
2: Any other questions? Thank you. Got one at the back here.
1: Uh, oh, hi. Hi. Um, uh, Roger, just quick, did you ever get um, support from other independent labels around the world? Did, did you guys go to conventions or did they write you letters
2: and yeah. offer you support? Yeah, well, from very, from very, early, on, from very early on, I thought that we were part of like an international kind of thing. That there were, like, because um, you know, I read The NME and Melody Maker, and I could see that there were these independent record labels that had popped up to encourage that whole burst of activity that sort of happened after Punk. Punk was like the can opener, and then sort of you know it was all, but the really interesting stuff came after because it, it inspired so many people to make music. And, that, and when that happened in New Zealand, there were labels like Propeller, Ripper, and then uh, we could I could see that we needed a label in the South Island to kind of cater for the bands that were coming out of there. But I was always kind of aware that there were other labels with a similar sort of outlook that were kind of doing a similar thing. There were people like us that were kind of on the outer from the from the from the from the conventional music industry, and that in time that we would, we would connect with them. So you know rough trade, four AD, mute you know that in America sub pop, um, we got pretty matey with all those people and distributors that worked with them, and because they were so bad at um, paying their bills, um, we started buying music off them and. Distributing that in New Zealand to try and count it, you know, (laughs) to try and and ease the cash flow. uh, Yeah, contra, contra it all. So yeah, I mean, a lot of those people are still actually quite quite close friends. I I think you saw that with
1: the uh, Chris Knox with the Stroke album, just who put their hands up to participate Mm. in that. It was a beautiful example of that kind of collegiality and solidarity and affection and respect. I think we'll have one more. Thank you. It's it's really great to hear the stories of the culture and the people and the society around that. I I hope I'm not dragging the tone down with a business question.
0: Um, And I know that there's a new relationship with um, uh, the flying out people, which is Mm -hmm. great to see. I saw research recently from NZ on Air saying
1: music is a kind of a digital leader. People do music digitally before anything else. And I thought, I don't know whether that's good news or bad news, but but music does seem to be ahead of the curve in terms of other media. (laughs) for making sales online. I'm wondering what the digital future looks like from your Mm. point of view. It's such a good question, because I don't know if anyone in this room is listening to Chance the Rapper, but I think he's fantastic. He's just so good. But I'm 52, and I want to buy his record. I want to buy it somehow, and you fucking can't. Mm. You can't even get it on iTunes. You can't get it on a CD. I mean, how does anyone make any money out of that? How does that work? How does that work as a business model? Well,
2: it's actually harder than ever. It's harder than ever to... um you know, to have a, uh, ironically, to make an impact. I think.
1: So how do you? So if flying nun was starting now. How would you make money?
2: Well, you need. Uh, well, the essential thing is probably not the. Uh, by having a band that somehow, had the kind of impact that Clean had in 1981, but I'm not sure that. But it's kind of as 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 music continues to sort of homogenise, and you know, it's homogenised in steps. You know, as the, as the from the 78 to the single to the to the LP and you know, the, the, the nature of how we buy music digitally has just enhanced that, you know. I, I, I wonder whether there are going to be regional scenes like the Deneen one was. I, yeah. I don't know whether that's actually possible anymore. So perhaps there's online communities, but do they do, they do the same thing? Do they, do they generate the same kind of bit of exciting, unique music that's then gonna sell enough, which is, what does that represent? That means that there's, there's a tangible, evidence that other people share your mm. enthusiasm for a particular type of music. But you know at the end of the day, there has to be some money, there has to be some in- income to kind of make it, make it happen, to push it on. Otherwise, it's just going to fall flat. Um,
1: Roger, we've, we've come to the end. I want to ask you one final question. When you read this book, when you look back on what started in 1981, do you feel the wonder, pride,
2: happiness, bewilderment? What, I mean, what do you make of all of this now? But I, I, obviously, I thought it was interesting enough to. I thought it'd make a good book.
1: <laughs> make some bloody good book. Yeah. Make some bloody good book.
2: Yeah. Do you feel proud? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I do. Well, but you, you know, should.
1: You should. It's it, like it's, I'm sorry because I'm from the north, Island and you're from the south. But <laughs> but you should. Thank you. Um, thanks everyone for coming. Thank you, oh, John. Oh, pleasure. Lo- a lovely, lovely crowd. It felt like we were just still having the coffee together without
0: the coffee, obviously. Um, we, um, ca- ca- you saw how we call time and Tatarangi as with a rooster.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Actually, I thought, it, I thought it was Peter complaining about Roger's assessment of him.
0: <laughs> hey, um, Roger Shepherd, thank you very much, um, not only for In Love With These Times, which is a fantastic book, um, and not only for joining us this afternoon, but for Flying None, which means a huge amount to a lot of people. Thank you also to John Campbell for yes, so, so eloquently uh, leading that. And thank you all for coming out on a Sunday afternoon here to Tsitarangi for uh, this session. Another round of applause, please. <laughs> Thanks, John.
2: Thank
0: this has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.